Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 26th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Department of Justice announced a global resolution of its criminal and civil investigations into the opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma and a civil resolution of its civil investigation into individual shareholders from the Sackler family. Purdue Pharma has agreed to plead guilty to three felonies, one charging it with dual-object conspiracy to defraud the United States and to violate the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, as well as two counts of conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. The criminal resolution includes the largest penalties ever levied against a pharmaceutical manufacturer, including a criminal fine of more than $3.5 billion and an additional $2 billion in criminal forfeiture. Purdue has also agreed to a civil settlement of $2.8 billion to resolve its civil liability under the False Claims Act. And the Sackler family has agreed to pay $225 million in damages to resolve its Civil False Claims Act liability. The resolutions do not include the criminal release of any individuals, including members of the Sackler family, nor are any of the company's executives or employees receiving civil releases. An important condition in the resolution is that the company would cease to operate in its current form, and would instead emerge from bankruptcy as a public benefit company owned by a trust or similar entity designed for the benefit of the American public to function entirely in the public interest. Purdue admits that it conspired to defraud the United States by impeding the lawful function of the DEA by representing to the DEA that Purdue maintained an effective anti-diversion program when in fact Purdue continued to market its opioid products to more than a hundred health care providers whom the company had good reason to believe were diverting opioids. Purdue also admits to conspiring to violate the anti-kickback statute. Purdue made payments to doctors through Purdue's doctor speaking program to induce those doctors to write more prescriptions of Purdue's opioid products. Purdue also made payments to Practice Fusion Incorporated, an electronic health records company, in exchange for referring, recommending, and arranging for the ordering of Purdue's extended-release opioid products. The DOJ resolution does not resolve claims that states may have against Purdue or members of the Sackler family, nor does it impede the debtor's ability to recover any fraudulent transfers. Applied Underwriters and Applied Risk Services filed a lawsuit against the Insurance Commissioner of the State of California and others in federal court asserting five claims under the U.S. Constitution. Applied and its affiliates primarily write workers' compensation insurance through multiple insurance companies in all 50 states since 2002. California Insurance Company is the largest of those companies and was formed in 2004. 
Applied Underwriters and Applied Risk Services allege that the California Department of Insurance acted in bad faith and abused its authority under state law in ways that have caused substantial harm to these companies. Disputes between the California Department of Insurance and Applied Underwriters has a long-standing history. The current dispute arose in January 2019 after the announcement of a $920 million sale of California Insurance Company to its company founder, Steve Menzies. The California Department of Insurance protested the sale and said that it must sign off on the deal because California Insurance Company was at the time domiciled in the state. It subsequently denied approval of the sale. The Department of Insurance then placed California Insurance Company into a conservatorship, allegedly under false pretenses, and allegedly, according to the news lawsuit, has abused its authority by trying to force applied underwriters to relinquish its rights in connection with the department's actions. In the year-long period that California Insurance Company has been in conservation, Applied Underwriters claims the California Department of Insurance has refused to resolve matters in good faith and has instead demanded that Applied subject itself to its jurisdiction, give up its right to bring this and other lawsuits, and bind itself to other onerous terms. The complaint says that up until this week, the Department of Insurance continued to propose unfair and preposterous terms under the constant threat that if applied and others did not agree, they would seek court approval for a rehabilitation plan that would be even worse. That rehabilitation plan originally was due in August, but was filed instead on October 19. According to Applied Underwriters, the rehabilitation plan effectively eliminates the California insurance company's business in California and other states and requires CIC to transfer its business to a new insurer of the commissioners in choosing and leaves just a shell CIC with all of its obligations to other reinsurers and affiliates under its contracts and no source of revenue to meet these obligations. And now our crime report. 37-year-old Michael Ray Williams of Daly City was sentenced to 60 days in county jail and three years formal probation after pleading no contest to two felony counts of insurance fraud. Prosecutors say he was illegally working for multiple employers while simultaneously collecting over $85,000 in workers' comp benefits from two different carriers. Williams repaid the state fund $40,000 in restitution and was ordered also to pay additional restitution to Travelers Insurance and his former employer. Williams was working as an electrician in 2014 when he sustained a work-related injury. He filed a claim with the state fund and began collecting workers' comp benefits. Williams then began working for a different employer in 2015, yet he continued to collect workers' comp from the state fund. Williams then sustained another work-related injury and filed another work comp claim, this time with the Travelers Insurance Company. 
During this time, Williams allegedly worked for and was paid by three different employers. At one point, he was collecting payments from both the state fund and travelers for two different work-related injuries, while at the same time continuing to work for an employer. William allegedly misrepresented his level of injury, abilities, earnings, and employment status to medical providers, including providing false statements to his qualified medical examiner in order to collect permanent disability benefits after the temporary benefits were exhausted. Williams is also charged with grand theft for allegedly using his former employer's credit card for personal expenses, including the purchase of an engagement ring. This case was being prosecuted by the San Mateo County District Attorney's Office. Trucking company owners 44-year-old Hardeep Singh and 36-year-old Amadeep Kaur were charged with multiple counts of insurance fraud. They allegedly misclassified employees as independent contractors in a scheme to underreport payroll by more than $1.4 million. This scheme resulted in a $234,000 loss to their insurer and a $220,000 loss to the Employment Development Department. The two were doing business as Trust Transport, a long-haul trucking company based out of their residence in Sacramento, and a separate trucking yard in West Sacramento. The company had workers' compensation insurance with the state fund and reported $105,000 in payroll. But state fund audits found that several workers were issued 1099s and had been misclassified as independent contractors. A Department of Insurance search warrant at Trust Transport's bank discovered nearly $1.5 million in under unreported payroll from the misclassified independent contractors. Singh and Cower fraudulently misclassified these employees in order to avoid paying higher workers' compensation insurance premiums. State Fund reported a $234,000 loss in underpaid insurance premiums, and the EDD reported a $220,000 loss. The Sacramento County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. A rapper who boasted in a YouTube music video about getting rich from committing unemployment benefits fraud has been arrested for this scheme. Prosecutors say he fraudulently applied for more than $1.2 million in jobless benefits by using stolen identities. 31-year-old Fontrell Antonio Baines, who uses the stage name Nuke Bizzle, who currently resides in the Hollywood Hills, was arrested and charged with fraudulently obtaining unemployment insurance benefits. Baines allegedly exploited the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Provision of the CARES Act, which is designed to expand access to unemployment benefits to self-employed workers, independent contractors, and others who would not otherwise be eligible. He used debit cards preloaded with unemployment benefits administered by the California Employment Development Department. 
The debit cards were issued in the names of third parties, including identity theft victims. The applications for these debit cards listed addresses to which Baines had access in Beverly Hills and Koreatown. At least 92 debit cards that had been preloaded with more than $1.2 million in fraudulently obtained benefits were mailed to these addresses. Baines and his co-schemers allegedly accessed, accessed more than $704,000 of these benefits through cash withdrawals, including in Las Vegas, as well as purchases of merchandise and services. Baines bragged about his ability to defraud the EDD in a music video posted on YouTube and in postings to his Instagram account. For example, Baines appears in a music video called EDD, in which he holds up a stack of envelopes from the EDD, claiming that he is getting rich by going to the bank with a stack of these, presumably a reference to the debit cards that come in the mail. Las Vegas police arrested Baines in September, who had at the time eight debit cards, seven of which were in the names of other persons. The criminal complaint alleges three felony offenses, access device fraud, aggravated identity theft, and interstate transportation of stolen property. If convicted of all of these charges, Baines would face a statutory maximum sentence of 22 years in federal prison. 54-year-old Angela Gillespie Shelton of Houston was sentenced to 60 months in prison for her leading role in an opioid buyback scheme. She pleaded guilty last May to one count of conspiracy to distribute controlled substances and one count of conspiracy to engage in money laundering. She and her co-conspirators ran South Fork Medical Clinic located in the Harvard Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. Their purpose was to sell prescriptions for narcotics in exchange for cash and to later acquire those same drugs from the clinic's patients and ship the narcotics to Texas and then sell them on the black market. The prescriptions were for drugs including oxycodone and hydrocodone. These are commonly sold under the brand names Vicodin, Narco, and Lortab. Also, Aprazolam, which is best known by the brand name Xanax and Carispidol, a muscle relaxant sold under the brand name Soma, and also Promethazine with codeine, which is a cough syrup sold on the street as Purple Drink and Scissorup. At the clinic, Dr. Madhu Garag saw patients and regularly prescribed them the narcotics, knowing that the customers did not have any actual or legitimate medical need for them. After the patients filled the prescriptions, they bought the drugs back from them and shipped the drugs to Texas. In Texas, they used two pharmacies that she controlled as a front to sell on the black market the drugs shipped from the Los Angeles clinic. The pharmacies in Texas also filled false or fraudulent prescriptions and received kickbacks from the fake prescriptions. Gillespie Shelton's co-conspirators also stole a physician's identity to issue falsified prescriptions to obtain additional narcotics. 
In 2016, Dr. Garg pleaded guilty to illegally distributing oxycodone and money laundering, and she later served an 18-month prison sentence. And in regulatory news, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has just released its latest version of the Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Reference Guide, which is now version 3.2. The new reference guide provides a list of major medical centers used by the Workers' Compensation Review Contractor. This list of centers is used to establish pricing associated with medical services, such as a surgery, hospital stay, or long-term inpatient care. CMS also added a new screen to the Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Portal, which inputs the appropriate zip code for the major medical center that was used in the calculation. This enhancement should improve the Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside process. The new process should reduce the number of counter-hire determinations received on Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Asides. The industry has been asking CMS to clarify this issue for some time, and this has been addressed in the new Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Reference Guide. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute study examined the initial impact of replacing the statewide average GAF in the Workers' Compensation Official Medical Fee Schedule with a system that uses smaller metropolitan statistical area localities when applying regional cost adjustments as part of the fee schedule. The state adopted the GAF or Geographic Adjustment Factors change for services rendered injured workers after 2019. This was done to improve payment accuracy and to align the OMFS allowable fees with those allowed by Medicare and other systems. Under the new structure developed by Medicare in 2017, there are 32 payment localities in California. The CWCI study found that switching from statewide to locality-specific geographical adjustment factors in the calculation of California workers' comp physician and non-physician service fees has not resulted in a major shift in where the dollars go. And despite concerns, the switch does not appear to have generated inappropriate shifting of billing to higher reimbursed areas or cause rural providers to leave the system. The study found that both before and after the switch, medical providers in Los Angeles County accounted for a much larger share of the office visit services and payments that providers in, than providers in any other locality. However, the Los Angeles County proportion of services and payments did decrease about 5 percentage points in the first year after the locality-specific GAFs were adopted. Those decreases, however, were offset by 5 percentage point increases in the proportion of E&M visits, that's evaluation and management visits, and payments to providers in nearby San Bernardino Riverside counties, a shift that occurred after large occupational medicine group expanded into the Inland Empire. 
Other than that, the study found no significant changes in the proportion of evaluation and management services or payments among the geographic localities and no indication of a shift in services or payments to providers in either urban or rural areas of the state. The study also showed that the switch to the new GAF had little effect on the types of E&M services used, as follow-up visits by established patients remained the most prevalent type of office visits. A key factor influencing the average payments in each locality was the use of discount contracts, such as those paid to providers within an employer's medical provider network, which allow payments below the fee schedule amounts. The percentage of evaluation and management services in the study sample that were paid at a discounted rate fell from 78.3% to 76.6%, but the average discount increased from 15.5% to 17.1%. So thus far, the use of these contracts has helped mitigate the impact that the change to the fee schedule's geographic adjustment factor has had on the average amounts paid for evaluation and management services. A new set of studies released by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute examined the factors behind trends in the medical payments per claim in workers' compensation. The CompScope Medical Benchmark's 20th edition examined trends in payments, prices, and utilization of medical care for workers injured on the job. California saw moderate growth in medical payments per claim, with more than seven days of lost time in 2017 after a decrease following the implementation of Senate Bill 863. Other policy changes that may influence the recent trends in California include two major fraud-fighting measures, AB 1244 and SB 1160, as well as the drug formulary required by AB 1124 and multiple medical fee schedule updates. The studies cover 18 states, including California. For more information on these studies, please visit the WCRI website. Marsh has published an insight report on the effects of COVID-19 on the workers' compensation industry so far. It says that many of the most dire predictions about COVID-19's impact on workers' compensation systems have not been realized. Claims of COVID-19 exposure in the workplace have been outpaced by a decline in other types of reported occupational injuries and the workers' compensation insurance market remains competitive. Industry observers forecast that workers' compensation premium volume will drop by as much as 10% to 20% in 2020 and will likely not continue to grow in 2021 as the labor market remains challenging. Despite this negative premium growth and a number of changes to the state regulations or directives regarding the compensability of COVID-19 claims, Marsh anticipates the impact to ensure profitability profitability to be less drastic and for the line to normalize fairly quickly. 
Other industry observers have published sizable initial ranges of estimated claims losses from COVID-19. But a large influx of COVID-19 claims have not yet materialized, with limited exceptions in healthcare. An initial analysis shows that the average severity of COVID-19 claims is lower than expected. And telemedicine will play an increasingly important role in workers' compensation potentially even after the pandemic subsides and workplaces largely transition to a new normal. Employers are reporting a variety of benefits and practical applications for telemedicine, including to facilitate triage and claim intake, initial injury assessments, follow-up visits, and injury rehabilitation. Prior to the pandemic, employers had expressed interest in telemedicine, but had not widely adopted its use in workers' compensation, in part because laws in some states limited this use. Since COVID-19 emerged, many states have eased restrictions and encouraged employers and claims administrators to use telemedicine. The explosion of telemedicine in workers' compensation during the pandemic also mirrors its greater use by primary care physicians and others in group health settings. As employers become more familiar with telemedicine's benefits during the pandemic, they may expect it to remain readily available in options post-COVID-19. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcasts and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.